Hello, this is Bill Curley. And Holly Hudley. And welcome to the podcast In Between, which is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church and Ordinary Life. Right, we're jumping in. Let's frame our conversation for today and for this Sunday. Um, I personally love Peterson's translation of this beatitude. Yeah, and just coincidentally, yeah. I, um, as you know, I think in part a part of a daily spiritual in religious and spiritual literacy, which for me means. Uh, constantly reading things like Darmut or Murku's books. I love that one uh, that we are currently pushing. Mm-hmm. But I have recently found a, a book by a yeah. Dominican Catholic priest um, whose name is Albert Nolan, and he's written several books. Um, He's a public theologian and emphatically a contextual theologian, which I think everyone is. But he's uh, he, he's doing mm. his theology in the context of South Africa during apartheid. Mm. And the chapter that I read this morning mm-hmm. was called what we're going to call not this Sunday, but the next Sunday's class. I think if I'm right about how these things show up. I think we should call it Taking Sides. That's the title mm-hmm. that's the title of his chapter. Ah. And he says you don't take sides with people uh-huh. or against people. You take sides against systems that oppress people who are sinned against. I just love the way that he thinks about this stuff. Yeah. This woman that I've been really inspired by lately that you, that I've, you have talked to you about is Sally McFaig um, and her writing of the body of God. And she says that sin is the refusal to acknowledge that we are part of the body. And anytime systems oppress the body of one, of course, they're oppressing the body of all if we view ourselves as part of that collective body. And um, I really, I like the way she frames it. And I still struggle with theologians who consistently or persistently try to fit the whole story into just the Christian narrative, as opposed to the Christian narrative into the whole story. And I'm realizing more and more that that is, um, why I kept bumping up against Teilhard or why I bump up against Richard Rohr, even why I bump up against Sally McFaig is because they're still trying to fit the cosmological story into the Christian narrative as opposed to the other way around, if that makes sense, you know? And um, yeah, but I do like, I mean, you know, it's kind of like you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. I like, I like some of the points and some of the teachings and messages, but. I want you to listen to this line from Nolan's book. Mm -hmm. Because he is confronting those who say that you need to take things slowly. You need to go one at a time. All those things that I heard back during the early days of the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. He says, 
the only effective way of loving our enemies is to engage in action that will destroy the system that makes them our enemies. Mm. That is a brilliant piece of thinking to me. Yeah. Yeah, because that means that we must engage with them to, you know, I was thinking about this the other day when I was thinking about restorative, I was teaching about restorative discipline to teachers and restorative justice is the same. It's like, we have to meet on that level of need, right? What is so often the need is the same, but the strategy is different. And when we have a system that we think is against us or against some, then where it usually differs is at the level of strategy. So if we can just come together, look each other in the eye and be like, hey, we both have this need for safety and belonging. How can we create a strategy that works for all? You know, I love that though, because it requires that we love our enemy as ourselves, right? And I'm growing increasingly fearful that we in this country have crossed a line where winning comes at, at, at the price of being willing to pay anything to win, for our side to win, and that we are in the process of maybe dismantling the democratic process of majority rule. Mm. It is possible. We saw you know, that the electoral college doesn't necessarily operate on majority rules. It operates on which states have the largest percentage of voters. And, right. um, and of that, even within the lar- larger states, not all the people vote. I mean, it's something like 23% of the eligible population of voters actually vote. It's terrifying. So um, the elephant is the, in the room is obviously the presidential election. The debate that was held last night, I don't know when people will listen to this podcast, but the debate that was held on Tuesday night, September the 29th, uh, was disgraceful, just absolutely disgraceful. One of the thoughts that I had while watching it was, I hope people in other countries aren't seeing this. It's embarrassing. I was with a friend the other day and we were talking about um, notions of God and um, she's had recently two relatives die. And so she was kind of, she was raised Catholic, but that doesn't work for her anymore. Um, But she finds comfort in some of the rituals. So we were talking about expanding our notion of God and life and, and it went on a lot of different subjects, but where it, um, where it ended was with her, weeping because what she felt was shame this shame about being an american a white american and i i asked her i said is it shame or is it grief and we kind of landed on this unprocessed grief that we have about seeing things shift before our eyes in a way that feels really powerless. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that one of the things is, 
we, I mentioned this once before, is that shame keeps us frozen. But we don't have a process around grief that helps move grief through. So we so often get stuck in shame and then we become defensive. So it goes from like shame to defensiveness, shame to defensiveness, as opposed to the process of grieving, which can be transformative. You know, I was reading, rereading something about Richard Rohr last night in his book about the Beatitudes. And the one thing that I liked that he wrote was identifying the difference between transformation and change. Change mm-hmm. changes something new. Transformation is the dying of something old. And a process of grief allows for that something old to die and something new to be reborn. Mm. And I don't think we know how to do that. And yet so many of us feel frozen with that feeling of what is happening here. Well, I, I think um, that there's really probably a way to experience transformation without the, uh, the ritual that um, honor the movement from one liminal space to another. I know that um, Roar told the story that after the uh, World War II, when uh, the Japanese were defeated, when the Japanese soldiers would come back into their communities, that they, the community had rituals where they would take the uh, Japanese soldier's uniform from him and give him a new identity, saying, you are no longer this. Mm-hmm. And it was something that the community did together and that the community celebrated. I know that, you know, I'm very big um, at referring men to the male rights of initiation. There are two prominent ones in this country. One is goes by the name of the New Warrior or the, now the Mankind Project. Mm-hmm. And uh, we rewarded one through his organization. He's now been taken over by a group of men called Illumin. And I have seen men's lives transformed in the process of going through this intense weekend ritual. And uh, the, they, they, men don't return to themselves the same way. It's a very powerful thing. Now, women, by and large, don't need this because go through their own ritual of transformation, transformation from girlhood to womanhood by bleeding, Mm -hmm. by having menstrual cycles, and men don't do that. Uh, For regular basis, for years, women are reminded about who they are are, and what their capabilities are. And that's been pretty wide men, particularly in Western cultures, um, in in many European cultures where uh, it's not, permitted to talk among a group of men about feelings and emotions and bodies, history, and that sort of thing. Um, men get shunted down very early. At, at any rate, this pair, this beatitude that we're going to do, I'm so grateful that we're co-teaching Me because um, 
the, the Beatitude is, says, blessed are the pure in heart. And I'm glad to be teaching with somebody who has a pure heart. I'll ask my kids. <laughs> ask my kids. <laughs> um, you know, they'll tell you exactly what's up over here. Um, and then I love Eugene Peterson's translation, which is, you're blessed when you get your inside world, your mind and heart put right. And Carl Jung told a wonderful yeah. story that I got from um, um, my teacher who's worked with Robert Johnson. Robert told a number of really great stories and it, it made his life career um, really out of taking these ancient myths and adapting and adopting them for modern culture. First book of psychology that Robert wrote is called E, which is a book about masculine psychology. Mm -hmm. It's not about men, mm -hmm. it's about masculine psychology. But anyway, Robert told the story about this community that had fallen ill. The, the crops are dying, the cattle were dying, the children are dying, the, the king was not well. I mean, the community was just in really bad shape. And they sent for a wise man to come and do a particular ritual that they believed would bring the community back to life. Mm -hmm. So they, they, for this wise man, the guru, and Robert pointed out, if you notice in these stories, the wise men always come from a distant land. They come from far off meaning that we have to go outside of our comfort zones and usual realm of thinking and believing and feeling in order to appropriate new knowledge and energy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the wise man comes and um, he, uh, of course, asked to be paid up front. There's always a price to be paid mm -hmm. for the transformation that we seek. And again, we live in this culture that promises ease. And so they did pay the wise man. And he also had asked that they provide him a dwelling like a sweat lodge so that he could enter into it and prepare himself for the ritual. So he enters into this lodge, closes the door and days pass. And during the time that he is in there, the community notices that the children are becoming healthy. The king is healed. Of, they can see that the crops are beginning to turn green and flourish. The livestock in the fields are beginning to get well. And uh, they are old. After a while, um, the wise man comes out of his hut and they are just, they greet him with just such joy and they say, you must tell us all that you did so that if we or our community falls ill again, we will know what to do. And the wise man said, I didn't do any ritual. I went into the sweat lodge and had to get my insides right before I could do the ritual. And when my insides were right, I realized there was no need for the ritual. Yeah, I love that story. It's beautiful, and that's exactly what this is saying. 
How do we get our insides right? Yeah, there's, um, so I have sort of three things that are braiding together because you mentioned the, num number one is um, responding directly to the, the working towards the inside. Um, in this book, The Body of God, Sally McVeigh goes through sort of um, five different models of God. One is the sort of clockmaker God, the out there God that, that just leaves the world alone. Um, one is the ruler God, the king God, right? The one that causes things to happen um, without necessarily engaging. The third is the, the personal God, the sort mm -hmm. of friend God. I pray to you, you impact my life. I listen, you speak to me. Um, but the fourth is um, the ag agential God, which he says is like God is an agent through which uh, transcendence happens. But it still places transcendence mostly in God through the human. And then the fourth, the fifth is this kind of ecological God, which is eminence. Um, the spirit moves through everything. And she's working with this idea that like transcendent and eminent God need to sort of come together. But this verse tells me, no, it's eminence. It's eminence first, which means interiority and then exteriority. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so again, I, I you know, we kind of need to flip it on its head. It's like, we must go in to be able to do effective work out as opposed to ask what's out there to come in and impact our lives. We must, we must first relate to that inner world in order to have any transcendent impact on the exterior world. So last week I said that um, I have lived during a time, and I'm thinking now about the 60s. Mm -hmm. uh, when there was a huge emphasis on renewal and revitalization in Christian religion organizations in this country, both Protestant and Catholic. And um, it was an exciting time. It was a great time uh, in many ways. And one of the books that was, um, books that I could reference that were very important during that time. One was called The Taste of New Wine, mm. which was a takeoff on the uh, parable of Jesus or the saying of Jesus that you don't put new wine in old wineskins. Right. The way that you taste new wines is that you have a new structure. There was a big emphasis um, on new structure. And probably one of the most innovative expressions of structure was a church in Washington, D.C., started by Gordon Cosby called the Church of the Savior. And one of the members of that church wrote a book about their experience, and it was called Journey Inward, Journey Outward, mm -hmm. which captures exactly what you were talking about. Mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. the, the people knew that in order to be effective in the outer world, they had to make the journey inward and to address the things there that would give them the congruence and power to do what needed to be done in the outer world and also the hope because right. it's really easy in our fragmented culture to get very discouraged mm -hmm. about how things are i was going to say that the the 
the balance is not getting stuck in the interior world, right? Because then if we get too stuck in that interior world, we stay in individuality. We stay in sort of like navel gazing, right? So the balance is kind of always moving between these two. It's a graceful dance, I would say. Interiority, exteriority. It's like in-breath, out-breath, right? With every out-breath, we need to put something of ourselves back out. And I just, yeah, I mean, the interiority is so important. And that's where I think this kind of like American ideology, or I would say post-colonial American ideology does come in handy. Individual identity matters, but only in as much as it contributes to the wider well-being, you know, which is something that our Native American brothers and sisters understood so well, this, this external reciprocal relationship between individual and the world. So I, I'll give you an example and see if this makes sense. Uh, because you're an artist. Mm -hmm. I wanted to become an artist. All I have to do is go buy mm -hmm. some paints and a and an easel and something to paint on, and then I will be an artist, right? So it's like saying that if I wanted to become a ballerina, of course I'd have to be a different sex. No, there's male ballet dancers. I need to get a, tutu, <laughs> yeah. a male ballet dancer. Uh, I'd have to get some ballet shoes and a bar to crack with and a mirror and all that sort of stuff. That's not how you become an artist or a, a ballet dancer. Mm -hmm. And so when I was really, I'm a seven on the Enneagram and I think it is unique to sevens to want to know how to mm. do stuff. And so I'm fascinated by magic. What's the secret of how things work? And I'm fascinated by kaleidoscopes. Yeah. I think they're a wonderful metaphor for broken pieces of glass becoming beautiful patterns. Anyway, when I was taking this instruction back in the 60s, my teacher said, if you promise me that you will trust me when I tell you that there nothing you can to be yeah then i will tell you some things that people who are busy being do yeah. <laughs> i'll guarantee that if you do these things that you need their level of being but at least you will be in the right space mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so people who who are being in the sense that i'm talking about and I, I swear I know people are probably getting sick and tired of this, but people who are busy have a practice. Yeah. People are, are ballet dancers. They practice. Yeah. People who are artists, they practice. Yes. Uh, they usually do their practice in this, in this space where there's a master yeah. who can guide them in their work until they're ready to be on their own. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, as an artist, I had many quote unquote masters. I had t my childhood art teacher who lives right down the street from you, actually. Um, I had my high school experience at HSPVA. And then I had a mentor in college who really helped me hone these skills. And then I had to go out into the world and do it myself. And this is, this is what the return is all about. And the hero's journey is that in the return, 
And I think the thing that we're sort of missing in our culture is a community to return to. We return in some ways, that's where individualism gets really dangerous, is sometimes we return to a void. We return to this, this sort of void of other individuals who aren't there with open arms ready to welcome us back. And, and in that sense, like we never get re-embedded into the community. Um, you know, we form these sort of hodgepodge communities, our little bubbles, if you will, that feel loving and accepting of, of us and our ways of being and our values. But it's, um, it is a piece of the ritual that we are missing in our culture, which is that return to community. Um, where, where, where is my place here? That's that like sense of belonging that I think human beings crave so much that we create these sort of fear-based places of belonging because when we open our eyes and sort of get reborn, it's so bright out there and we don't know where to step in because the, the return welcome committee is missing in some way. Mm -hmm. I wanted to say something when you were talking about sort of the male um, rights of initiation and, and the two programs that you could call upon. Um, certainly women and girls do have this very obvious moment from girlhood to womanhood. But one of the things we're taught is to, to be ashamed of it, you know? Mm. And, and so the, the sort of return that I think femininity needs in this culture is to, is to transform that shame into creation and beauty as opposed to, um, you know, it's, we're not, we, we aren't really expected or taught to, to talk about that monthly transformation that happens for a good 30 to 40 years of our life. It's still mm -hmm. something that happens very much in private, very much away there, you know, in some cultures, they would separate the man and the woman during that time. Mm -hmm. And so this idea, um, even though the body hat, the body goes through the process, the individual is taught in, in the wider culture that it's a shameful process. And so there needs to be some reclaiming of the beauty of that mm. natural transformation that occurs in the female body. I remember in growing up having that sense that there was something shameful um, because I think uh, maybe this is still the phrase, that the products sold to women to deal with their monthly periods were called feminine hygiene projects. Like there's something dirty right. about that. That's exactly think, right. They're still called that, by the way. No, but and yeah. when I was growing up, that they were wrapped in plain wrapping paper in stores so that they didn't call attention to themselves. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one thing that's been a big movement in sort of the um, sex education community is um, free birth control, right? But so many women are saying, what about free feminine products? You know, like, again, this idea that like, um, that we have to, we also have to purchase our cleanliness, so to speak, whereas... Um, the contraceptive devices that are for men are they're given away freely. So again, there's this value between what, what which sex or which um, sexual identity do we, do we protect and value? It's just, I mean, I think 
You know, yeah, we've, we've got a lot of work to do both in the masculine and in the feminine to really regain some sense that, um, that we're okay in our hearts and minds, as this verse says, you know, and there's nothing in our world that shows us that interiority, that okayness is, mm-hmm. is, is okay. You know, I think that what was true for people in the time of Jesus as well as for the insights that Amuraku and Michael Morewood and Ilya Delio, Brian Swim, others that we can mention, what they bring uh, to the table is an awareness that what we call First Nations people or people who live closer to the ground, to the earth, have a much more profound sense of the sacred than people who are separated from that, either separated from the earth, um, to recognize our dependency on the earth and the need to care for the earth, mm-hmm. like in braiding sweetgrass. Yeah. Um, the, yeah. The, the Thanksgiving ritual that is in that book, which is you wrote a blog about <laughs> on the Ordinary oh, Life yes. website. Yeah. That's just a, such a profound yeah. thing. Imagine if the debate last night had started with the reading of the Haudenosaunee Thanksgiving address. Just imagine. It would have been a different event. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> At least would have started as a different event. <laughs> yeah. You know, what I'm thinking about, and, and just to be put it, put it out there, is that we're talking around this beatitude that says, uh, blessed are the pure in heart, that is, those who get their act together, who are to explore the interior mm-hmm. world, uh, to know themselves, because they shall see God. Yeah, in the outside world. In the outside world. And yeah. um, probably if you don't meet God first on the inside, you'll never see God mm-hmm. on the outside. Uh, I'm a, I'm aware that personalizing this God is a very, very risky thing to do, but I don't know how else to do it. Well, in some ways, you know, what I, what I sort of got out of braiding sweetgrass was that in some way we need to personalize everything in some way. So, so, you know, she was talking about the reference in her, what would have been her native language if she was brought up among the Indian native American community, um, that plants are referred to as um, the plant people, the tree people, the animal mm-hmm. people. So it's a way of personalizing the natural world because by saying plant people, we can say it too has an aspect of soul or spirit, right? Without its aspect, right. without its plantliness, we can't survive. We know without the, without the plant people, the human people can't survive. So what, what she talks about is the peopling of everything, but everything has a different sort of um, a- expression of its peoplehood. And, and so in that way, it's like, I think it's, that's a beautiful way to personalize everything. As long as we don't like uh, individualize everything, like it's all about me. <laughs> right? Personal. It's like, it's very personal how we relate to the, to the world and to one another, but it's not just about me. 
you know? So I wonder if there's a difference between personalization and individualization. I think there is. Yeah. We have a big emphasis on the, the yeah. that is really costing us in this, in this world. It's all about me and mine. And we really lose sight yeah. of the hour quality. Yeah. I'd love to read this poem. It, it, it has, it's, it's just, I don't know that it has so much to do with this particular verse, but it does have to do with seeing God on the outside once we've gone inside. This is a poem written by a four and a half year old. Good night, God. I hope that you are having a good time being the world. I like the world very much. I'm glad you made the plants and trees survive with the rain and summers. When summer is nearly year, near, the leaves begin to fall. I hope you have a good time being the world. I like how God feels around everyone in the world. God, I am very happy that I live on you. Your arms clasp around the world. I like you and your friends. Every time I open my eyes, I see the gleaming sun. I like the animals, the deer, and us, creatures of the world, the mammals. I love my dear friends. That's fabulous. A four-year-old wrote that. Right? I mean, this is the, you know, probably a four-and-a-half-year-old doesn't have this deep interior world practice, but that the beautiful simplicity of being like, of course it's all, of course this mystery is all around me. Of course it's all my friend. <laughs> you know? Um, I have have a, a, a friend who is a union analyst and he has a three-year-old daughter and he was telling us the other day that his three-year-old daughter uh -huh. when she needs to make an exclamation about something oh yeah. got it he said then they were talking about going to get their flu shots as a mm -hmm. family and three-year-old kid says did i hear that correctly Blue shots? Oh, goddess. Count me out. <laughs> I love it. I mean, yeah, there's... That, well, when I hear you read a poem that, like that by a four-year-old, and I hear stories like that about a three-year-old, I think maybe there's yeah. some hope. Yeah. Children see so much more than get educated not right and yeah uh, i'm sure that's why jesus but if you want to enter the kingdom you must become childlike which has to do not only the ability to have what the buddhists call beginner's mind but also it has to do with um the radical dependency that children have to have on to survive mm -hmm. and um, you know we have to have this radical dependence on the sacred as our source of nurture and identity and motivation and yet not see it as separate from us right and it, it separate us from each other either that's very mm -hmm. important mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. what I think yeah. So where do you see God in the world, Holly? Hmm. That's um feels like a heavier question today than it might have felt like 
some time ago. Today, I uh, was out in my garden and um, a succulent that I have bloomed two nights ago that when it blooms, it looks like a starfish. And it has little fuzzy hairs on it and it's soft and it's this pink, purplish, fleshy starfish bloom that sort of just lays itself open. And to me, the miracle in that is the repetition of perfect form. The starfish belongs in the ocean. This plant that looks like a starfish lives on land. Wow. You know, and, and, and then when we draw a star, we draw it in, in that shape, right? right? So there's this like beautiful repetition of, of form from the smallest to the largest. And I saw God in that um, just as strongly. I must also try to see God in the things that disappoint me. And, um, mm. you know, if we think that it all belongs, it means that the, the growth is to allow that all belongs. And how do we grow from the things that hurt and disappoint? I, I have a standard black poodle who is almost 11 years old. And um, of course he no longer sleeps in a crate or whatever, he sleeps in a special place that he's found for himself in our living room. And uh, because he's getting older, he moves like an older dog. And um, every morning, I am doing my spiritual practice. He will get up and come to where I am and just put his head in my lap, wanting to be petted or whatever. I think actually it's a, it's a recall of when he was a puppy and what he would do is nuzzle up mm. to the mother for their nurture. But every morning he mm -hmm. comes and does the same thing, just wants attention, wants to let me know that mm. he's there. Please feed me, love me, hug mm -hmm. me. And um, it's a great example yeah. of loyalty and absolute unconditional love that dogs can offer. Yeah. But we need to get our inside world right. Yeah, I'll say yes to that. And we'll get back to getting our inside world right so that we can see God on the outside on Sunday.